Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. The UN recently calculated that almost one child per second is becoming a refugee because of the invasion of Ukraine. Those haunting images of kids fleeing for safety with their moms, packed into trains, pressing their hands up against the glass windows, trying to make sense of what's happening in their world. Stories of migration shape many of our lives here in California, too. My dad was a refugee during the partition of India and Pakistan as a child. And later, as a young man, he became an immigrant to the U.S. In fact, here on the California Report magazine, our small but mighty all-women team is made up entirely of kids of immigrants who came to the Golden State. I'm Sasha Koka. Today on our show, how stories can help children make sense of their parents' journeys of migration. I think that she's a strong person because she never gave up. She just kept going. The way books, whether written for kids or for adults, can help us unpack what it means to feel displaced, to lose a country and a sense of self, or to find one. The feeling was, I'm not alone, not any longer. I am not a freak. I am accepted, and I accept in return. We're going to start our show with a daughter's quest to uncover the story of her parents. And in the process, her own history. Netta Tului Semnani is an Emmy Award-winning writer and producer. She's covered politics and more for outlets like Vice News and The Washington Post. And she's just released her first book called They Said They Wanted Revolution, A Memoir of My Parents. It's pieced together from interviews, diaries, and archives, and it dives deep into her family's history, both in the U.S. and Iran, going back to her grandfather's decision back in the 1920s to choose a last name for his family, a name he thought up as he walked some 200 miles from his hometown to Tehran. My grandfather could have seen the jagged mountaintops surrounding him and listened to the sounds of the desert as they alternately swelled and calmed. His back would have begun to warm, as if there was a hand pressed against him, urging him westward. He chose this name, Tului, of Sunrise, and attached it to Semnani, of the city of Semnon. We are a clan born of the sunrise over Semnon, the city where his family started. Our history is contained in these words. Our name holds poems, journey, elation, and grief. When I say it, I am telling the story of our ancestors. 
Netta Tului Samnani, welcome to the California Report. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this book travels the globe, um, but it has a very strong California thread, starting with your grandmother who first immigrated to California from Iran as a divorced woman back in the 1950s. And then she ended up raising your mom um, as a single mom in, in Monterey. Tell me about what it was like for your mom to grow up in Monterey as an Iranian-American teenager. My mother felt very out of place for a lot of her adolescent years. In the course of reporting this book, I was able to go to her high school, and the librarian there was so helpful. She let me go through the old yearbooks, and she had always said she had felt left out and kind of isolated. And I noticed as I was going through that her name was left out of the group pictures, Mm. which kind of told me everything I needed to know about how she felt and why she felt that way. Your mom came to Berkeley in the 1960s as a college student, which is where she met your dad, who was also a student, although he came directly from Iran uh, to study engineering. Can you read us the passage where you describe your mom walking down Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and you just imagine her as this young college student? Yes. Just before she meets your dad. Absolutely. On that first day in Berkeley, she walked hurriedly down Telegraph Avenue. She had a quick, funny gait, heels in and toes out. It pitched her hips back and forth in a way that was a little tomboyish and a little suggestive. She found the sublet, which belonged to a young couple who were visiting Iran for a few months. The apartment was essentially a small room, but my mother took it to share with another Iranian girl, Akal Naz, who was a few years younger than she, the little sister of a friend. The girls moved into the studio with a love seat, milk crates, a phone, and a turntable. They slapped fat psychedelic flower decals on the walls and pulled down the murky bed to share. So Berkeley in the 1960s, of course, was at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement, the free speech movement. How do you think being in that environment radicalized your parents? You know, it's one of the reasons why I spent so much time kind of researching the time and the place and digging into what Berkeley was like in 1969 versus 1965 versus 72. It was to see, kind of get a sense of how Berkeley was changing, how the people, the students within the university, but also the people within the town were changing. So as I was talking to the Iranian students who were at the time becoming more political and certainly more like militant, they were looking around at groups like the Black Panthers to see how they were doing it. They were very aware of SDS. They were, in fact, some of them were members of both SDS and the Iranian student movement. So these weren't uh, separate groups. The Iranian students were very much in the thick of it. They were tracking with everybody else that was politically active in Berkeley. For, For young people who were feeling that kind of drive to change, there was one kind of part of the spectrum that was drawn to the more militant, radical side of it. Well, your parents, you know, really were catapulted onto the international stage with some of the radical protests against the Shah. They helped take over the Iranian consulate in San Francisco. 
In fact, your mom was a spokeswoman at a lot of these protests, and you actually found some old footage of her from KQED television when she was speaking to a reporter at a protest in 1971. In order to expose the uh, celebrations that are uh, taking place in Iran and expose the nature of the regime in Iran, which is a fascistic, tyrannical, repressive regime in Iran, When I first clicked on this link, which was just like one of those random Google searches, I saw my mom just out of nowhere wearing this low hat and these big sunglasses, very clearly trying to stay anonymous or unrecognizable. But, you know, you know your mother's voice and you know her face. And my mother and my father were part of the Iranian student movement. And there was various different factions of that. Um, The one thing that really unified them is that they didn't want the Shah of Iran to be in power anymore. And my parents were on the left. Uh, They started as Marxist-Leninists, and as Berkeley tracked towards Maoism, which it was wont to do in the early 1970s, so my parents also kind of went further and further to the left. And it became illegal to be part of the what they call the Confederation, the Iranian student movement. So then people were starting to cover their faces. So in this clip and other clips, you'll see that often they're wearing masks. And as the 70s went on, these became full face coverings. And the fear was that the Shah's secret police would somehow track them down and, and either target them or their families back in Iran? Yeah, that was a specific fear. And then there was a broader fear that they were going to try to kind of sabotage the movement. Um, It was something the Iranian government was doing that with Savak, which was the secret police. But the American government was doing that with the left as well. Um, They were sending in, you know, the FBI to kind of pretend to be a student um, at at Berkeley as a part of the SDS, for example, and sit in on meetings. So it wasn't something that was completely, you know, out of left field. But yeah, they were very aware that they were being watched. Your parents eventually left California to go abroad to fight the Shah, and they ended up back in Iran to support the revolution at a time when many Iranians who weren't supportive of the revolution were leaving and coming to places like California. It's a really different narrative than what we hear from a lot of Iranian immigrants to the U.S. from that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of my favorite images was the the planes going back into Iran being filled with these young, idealistic um, activists uh, who had been working for so long towards this revolution, filling these planes and singing like revolutionary anthems, um, both the leftists and obviously uh, the Islamists who were also part of this revolutionary fervor. At first, this group of the leftist student movement joined up with the Ayatollah and the Islamic wing of those people who were trying to overthrow the Shah. This was a coalition movement, really. It was a pragmatic choice, one might say. So as soon as the goal was achieved, which was, you know, getting rid of the Shah, then questions about how do we govern, who gets to govern, who takes power, were brought to the fore. It became clear that the revolution wasn't going to kind of pan out the way that the students certainly had hoped or my parents had hoped. So your dad was arrested and basically disappeared and you and your mom had to escape 
to try to get out of Iran and back to the U.S., part of the journey was getting smuggled over to Turkey on horseback. And at that time, your mom was very pregnant with your little brother. Can you read us a passage about that escape? I was given my own horse and my own mustachioed smuggler. He scared me, so Emme and my uncle let me ride with them at various points in the night. But I don't remember that at all. I held on tightly to my blue satin jacket. The night went on. Emma's horse wandered from the rest of ours. Don't be scared, the smuggler riding with my aunt told her. You're like a sister to me. I'll take care of you. It grew later still. The horse swayed beneath me. I fell asleep against the smuggler. In my sleep, my fingers loosened their grip on my windbreaker. I woke up when it fell from my hands, floating down the mountainside. I begged the smugglers, my mother, aunts, and uncle to stop the horses and go back and find it. My smuggler went back and tried, but he didn't see it. I know where it is, I told him. I can find it. But it was dark and late. We had to keep moving. It was such a harrowing journey for your family, um, for you as a young child, and for your mom, who was very pregnant. But you did make it back safely with your mom to Monterey, uh, to your grandmother's. And at that point, your father back in Iran was sentenced to death. The, The trial was actually televised nationally, and he was executed by the Ayatollah's forces. Part of this book is you're trying to figure out who your dad was and, you know, paint a fuller picture of him beyond just your your memories from childhood and to understand your parents um, and the radical stance they took. What did you learn about your dad through researching this book? People would give me these little kind of crumbs of my father, like that he would bite part of his hand when he was thinking, or he would click a pen when he was talking, or his voice when he would laugh, or how he would respond when he got annoyed. And so all of a sudden, there was a texture to him that had been missing before. Um, Someone even recently sent me a picture where my dad's laughing, and I had never seen a picture of him laughing before. The only image I have seen of my father speaking with his speaking voice was in his trial, you know, I found online. فروردین 59 یعنی بعد از برگزاری شورای سوم من انتخاب شدم به کمیته دائم و تا زمانی که خط جنگل It was these kinds of ways um, that I was able to patchwork him together from an idea into something that was more textured and and more human and flawed and kind of beautiful. You also dug up a musical album from 1973 where your dad is singing lead vocals. Um, It was, I guess, part of a fundraising effort um, for the leftist groups fighting the Shah. How did you feel when you heard him singing? You know, it's. I wanted it to be longer. <laughs> I wanted it to go on forever. I just wanted, I thought it was, I don't know. I wish I could have seen him while he was doing it. I wanted to kind of crawl through the recording and just sit at his feet and listen. I, I can't sing. Um, and it was one of those stories that as a child, I was told how well my dad could sing. 
So for years, I just felt like that connection, if only I could sing, we would have a stronger connection. But <laughs> it was such a gift. Yeah, it was a total gift. Well, you also found a recording of your mom, something she did with StoryCorps back in 2008. And the interviewer asks her what she thinks your dad would make of her life in the U.S. if he were still alive. More than anything, I think he would have been proud of his two children. He never saw his son. And his daughter, who was the apple of his eyes, they didn't see each other after she was two and a half. Mm. You know, so his sort of ghost hovers over my daughter. Um, and uh, still does. You did not hear that interview until after your mom died, right? Yeah, three years after. So what what did you think when you heard her voice coming through your speakers and saying that? I I was kind of frozen in place. I hadn't heard my mother's voice for so many years at that point. It was actually a really beautiful moment of being parented after not having parents for a while where she just showed me that she had seen me all those years growing up when I thought no one understood. And my mom sort of, in her way, had had seen what was happening, how lost I had felt and how much I was grieving my dad and how I was trying to make sense of everything. And I think I really respected that she had given me space all these years, all my life, to take my time and find my way through this story and make my own peace with it. Neda, thank you so much for sharing your family story and, and your story with us. Thank you so much. This was, this was amazing. Neda Tului Samnani's new memoir of her parents is called They Said They Wanted Revolution. And I'll be talking with her more for a virtual event with the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on Wednesday, March 23rd. You can find out more at californiareport.org. Here in California, people speak more than 200 languages. In fact, we are the most linguistically diverse state in the union. But for decades, our state limited bilingual education in public schools. Remember Prop 227? Well, back in 2016, voters repealed that ballot measure. So now kids have the opportunity to learn in two languages. We're also starting to see more bilingual children's books, especially in Spanish and English. Makes sense in a state where a quarter of the residents speak Spanish as a first language. And as KQED's Chloe Veltman tells us, the stories don't just highlight bilingual or BIPOC characters. They also have a strong social justice focus. Ten-year-old Katie Noriega and her mom snuggle up together with a book at their home in San Jose. Are we going to the land that we see on TV? Will we fly in a plane? Will there be more toys for me? Her dad forced a smile and put on a brave face. It won't be so easy to get to that place. Para Todos, or For All, tells the story in Spanish and English. It's about the struggles of a young girl named Flor and her father. They're forced to flee their homeland and make their way in a new country. Here's Katie's mom, Rocío González. Vamos a ese lugar que vemos en la tele. Iremos en avión. Tendremos muchos juguetes. Rocio migrated here in her late teens from Jalisco in Mexico. She understands English but feels more comfortable speaking in Spanish. For Katie, who's lived her entire life in the US, it's the other way around. When I'm speaking Spanish, 
sometimes I always mess up the word and then it's like always embarrassing for like no reason. Even though they're reading in different languages, Katie and Rocio say they get a lot out of the experience. Katie responds to Flora's courage and tenacity. I think that she's a strong person because she never gave up. She just kept going. Meanwhile, Rocio says books like Para Todos help connect the dots between what she has and hasn't yet told her daughter about her own complex journey as an immigrant to this country. Cuando introducimos este tipo de libros, podemos conectar lo que ya hablamos o lo que no se ha hablado, parte de lo que no se ha hablado con ellos de acerca de nuestro viaje, ¿no? Many studies over the years have shown that bilingual books help to improve literacy levels. And that's especially true when they highlight diverse characters, says Belén Delgado. She's with the Dolores Huerta Foundation headquartered in the Central Valley, and she works on supporting education programs for the children of immigrants. Having access to books where you feel represented or you feel heard and validated in, it's a great thing to have at such a young age. Now, a small but growing number of bilingual children's titles are going even further. They not only centre Latinx characters, but also make them powerful agents of change. In Para Todos, the story we heard about earlier, our main character, Flor, becomes an activist for immigrant rights. Alejandra Domenzain is the author. She lives in San Mateo County. It's not just about let's have diverse characters and diverse stories. It's let's look at the structural systems that are causing the injustice and have on-ramps for young people to question them and to know that it's possible to make structural changes. Also tackling social justice themes is La Gran Decisión de Joelito, or Joelito's Big Decision. The book is about an 11-year-old boy who fights for better wages for low-income workers. It's by Oakland-based author Anne Burlack. I decided to write Joelito as an example of how people can not only know that there's an alternative, but fight for an alternative. And Leticia Hernandez Linares's new book, La Lucha de Alejandria, or Alejandria Fights Back, tackles the topic of eviction, something this San Francisco mother of two boys says she once faced herself. Teachers and parents have been very grateful and excited about this book as a vehicle to open up discussion around hard things with their kids. Despite the gratitude and excitement, it's been challenging for authors to get these books into the hands of the families that need them most. If you go to a progressive bookstore, you'll see a very small Spanish language section, then you'll see a tiny bilingual. That's Timothy Sheard. He runs Hardball Press. The small indie imprint is the publisher of Para Todos, Joelito, and other bilingual social justice children's books. He says he's committed to publishing them because they portray their diverse protagonists as heroes. Not the sidekicks or the butlers. It's empowering for children in a big way. And that's why I produce these books. Libraries also struggle to acquire these books, says San Francisco Public Library children's librarian Elizabeth Perez. People see a book and they're like, well, I saw it on Amazon. How come you can't just order it? And we really wish it was that easy. Perez says most bilingual titles are self-published or put out by small presses. So it's hard to find them on the lists of approved vendors through which the library system purchases books. Sometimes our own hands are tied. 
Perez hopes the situation will change, because when these titles do make it out into the world, they can make a big difference. Tuck-a-tuck, flip-clop. When Anna looks down the hill below her house, she sees a man with a sign that reads Biblioburo. Such is the case with Waiting for the Biblio Burro, or Esperando el Biblio Burro, by Monica Brown, who grew up in California. Here's Brown reading from her book on YouTube. Anna picks up book after book and finds pink dolphins and blue butterflies, castles and fairies, Based on a true story, Biblio Burro is about a mobile library that travels throughout rural Colombia, bringing books to children. When I have read that book, it gave me an idea that I could replicate that. Ana Maria Bacujo is a public health worker and university professor in the Philippines. Brown's book inspired her to launch a roving literary service for kids in underserved communities throughout her country. Bakujo says there are no burros in the Philippines, so she started out on a motorcycle and eventually upgraded to a jeep. That's why it's called the Jeepney of Hope. Bring them joy, the joy of reading, bringing them hope. Bakujo says her library features many bilingual books on social justice themes. When the Jeepney visits low-income rural communities and the kids get their hands on these books, she says they become aware of their rights and they start to dream. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. We've been asking you for your stories about how you're finding joy and resilience these days. And we heard this. Please listen to the following options for encouraging messages. If you're feeling mad, frustrated, or nervous, press 1. If you need words of encouragement and life advice, press 2. That's a hotline called Pep Talk, and it features students from Westside Elementary School in Healdsburg. That's in Sonoma County. If you're sad or angry, go get a cookie, a smoothie, or an ice cream. Be grateful for yourself. Live it up. You can press four if you need to hear kids laughing with delight. And five to hear encouragement in Spanish. This project is a collaboration between two artists, Ashira Weiss and Jessica Martin. Jessica says the idea of making people feel better is something these kids are thinking about a lot these days. They've been through a pandemic. They've been evacuated because of wildfires. Uh, not to mention just negotiating the trials and tribulations of growing up. Westside is a pretty small rural school. It's just got 141 students. More than a third of them speak Spanish. Jessica says the hotline was originally created for their local community. They were thinking it might get 100 calls a month, but then it got shared out on social media. Last I checked, we were getting 11,000 calls an hour. All of us are going through our own versions of of grief and despair, uh, to hear a child's voice is incredibly powerful and so comforting. She says while the response has been kind of overwhelming, the kids are thrilled the hotline is helping so many people. The school has started a GoFundMe to maintain and expand the pep talk hotline and even help other schools start their own projects like this. It's so important to get the 
message out to kids that they are powerful, that they are relevant, and that we need their joy right now. You are okay. We love you. If you need a boost, call the hotline at 707-873-7862. That's 707-873-7862. And if you live in Healdsburg, you don't have to call the hotline. You can just look for the inspirational flyers the kids have put up all over town. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We are a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our producer director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer, and our team also includes Amanda Font, Izzy Bloom, and Alexander Gonzalez. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.